Senate Democrats bring an assault weapons ban to the floor. Plus, an NBC pollster explains the huge jump in gun ownership and its political implications. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. This week, we are talking about a very influential, um, uh, very surprising, maybe not surprising, uh, poll from NBC News. And, uh, and to discuss that, you know, I figured we'd have somebody who could give us some real insight into this poll. Uh, and that's why we have uh, Micah Roberts, who's with, um, he's a partner at Public Opinion Strategies, which actually conducted the poll. So seems like a pretty good guest to have on to talk about the poll, right? Welcome to the show, Micah. Can you just tell people a little bit more about yourself and about your company? Sure. Um, and it's really great to be with you, Stephen. Uh, Public Opinion Strategies has been around since the, the 90s. We've been doing the NBC News poll um, since uh, 2004. Um, so we're longstanding uh, partners with the with NBC News as well as our Democratic partner on that heart research. I also do the CNBC polling, which is another media poll that focuses mainly on economic issues, which we probably won't get to today. Um, but I've been with uh, I've been in this uh, field for 16 years, um, all with public opinion strategies. Our firm does um, political and public affairs work as well as these media polls. So we're we're steeped in research and uh, happy to talk more about these issues with you. Wonderful. Yes. Well, we like to have uh, people who are experts in the field whenever we talk about these kinds of things. And so I'm glad you were able to come on and, and give us some insight to this poll. And speaking of which, it goes back to 1995. So we're going to get into some of the trends, which I think is another interesting bit out of this. There's a, uh, This is actually a poll of voters. So there's a lot of political insight, which uh, is kind of our wheelhouse here at The Reload, uh, guns and politics. And so I think there's a lot we can go over. But the top line in this poll, really, to me at least, and uh, and I'll see if you agree, is that it found a huge increase in gun ownership among American voters. And now, for the first time ever, uh, a majority of American voters report having a gun in their home. Yeah. I mean, more Americans being armed than ever before is a pretty a uh, pretty big headline um, uh, considering the politics of, of gun ownership and gun rights in America. Um, so it's the first time that's happened in our poll uh, back going back for, you know, two, uh, 20 years that we've asked the, the question, over 20 years we've asked the question. Um, and it was a six point increase from the last time we asked it in 2019. So uh, the COVID years, um, the, the time after that, you know, there's a lot of um, evidence to say that those those years did see an increase in gun ownership and not much uh, public polling that picked that up. And so we were kind of not surprised, but um, but, um, you know, uh, interested that 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 uh, came to light in our poll. And, you know, like anything else, polls vary from, you know, one to another. <clears throat> there is a margin of error and everything else. But we were comfortable enough that the rise was and where it was happening um, uh, definitely made sense with with some of the evidence that we that we knew about uh, uh, in those COVID years and thereafter. Yeah, certainly. I think that's the 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 prime takeaway here from from this poll. When I look at it, is 
uh, it's further evidence of these trends that we have been discussing for the last three years, you know, that, that we've seen from obviously anecdotal evidence, which is your least reliable type, right? But, but also from, you know, industry dealer surveys was where some of the first numbers came from for how many new gun owners uh, we estimate came into the market during that period. Um, which is, you know, that it's a little more scientific, but not quite the same as, as you know, the poll that you guys conducted. Uh, and then we got some research from University of California, I think, looked into this question of rising gun ownership, especially uh, among minorities and people who, uh, you know, women, people who haven't traditionally been uh, associated with gun ownership in America as strongly. Uh, we'll get into some of that later. But but I think the top line here is just that you found the increase, which um You've seen an increase in some of the other polls, the Associated Press, for instance, uh, their number of guns in the home is up at 46 percent, which was a several point increase pre, you know, over the pre-pandemic numbers. Uh, you haven't seen as much of an increase from, I think, some of the other surveys like Pew Research. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, can you walk us through why you think there might be a difference in what you guys found versus what some of these other major media polls have found? Uh, do you think the fact that you're looking at voters instead of adults is, plays any role at all? How, how do you break that out? The the difference between voters and adults shouldn't make too much of a difference, though. Um, you know, um, the difference could be, I mean, if you're talking about other polls have shown an increase, but they went from, say, 41 to 46 or something right. like that. You know, that's I think that would be um, not a difference. I think that would reinforce the trend that we found in our poll, because it's mm -hmm. not so much, okay, are you both getting to 52? It's over time, um, this is how you read polling, you look at the trend line, is the trend line moving? Meaning, if you ask the same question the same way to the same audience, um, over time, is that moving the number? And so, again, I would, I think, moving any amount, you know, six points, five, six points, it's important. And this one just kind of caught the, I think, maybe caught more uh, attention because it was a majority. We're so fixated on a majority uh, in our in our politics that this one, you know, might have might have spiked a little bit. Um, I love Pew. Pew is an extremely reputable, extremely um, we work with we work with them all the time, extremely thoughtful uh, research organization. Their, the difference in their methodology could be a difference in why you don't see an uh, increase there, um, mainly because they have switched to and done thoughtful research to support this switch, uh, switch to using a panel that they've kind of they, they've created, curated and maintained. <clears throat> but those people do know that they are um, taking a Pew survey and they are, um, you know, typically the same people um, that answer those those surveys. So we're getting a random sample uh, from a voter file. Um, most surveys still do it that way. We do phone surveys, lots of surveys do online. You might get some different numbers if you did this online. There's a little bit less social desirability. People might not be um, comfortable saying that they own a gun or have a gun in a household on the phone with somebody, and they might be more comfortable to click that box online or vice versa. You know, people have different, you know, levels of, of um, personal security. But, right, but in general, I think we're going to see this number increase over time. Uh, and, and this was just a kind of a D 
demarcation point uh, that we got over 50. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that probably does play some role in why it got more attention, but, uh, but I think the trend yeah, is, is the bigger deal than the, I mean, the 50%, that is, that is a pretty big uh, headline for, as it relates to politics, especially because it's a poll of voters, but um yeah, the trend line, I think, is what you called uh, shocking in the NBC poll. That was a 10-point increase over a decade. That uh, right. Can you, you know, just elaborate on why you find that shocking, I guess? Well, or I surprising. mean, it's, it, it's a shock it, because things things like this are, um, I mean, we all know the COVID years kind of upset the apple cart in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Things like gun ownership are um, pretty... Uh, you know, these are things that in your family you learn about, you know, and 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 those traditions tend to get passed down and they're very hard to change. Mm-hmm. So for this to happen over a 10 year period, I mean, we know the reality of our you know societal differences that may have impacted that. And I'm not saying that I know exactly why it's 10 percent dif- uh, difference, but you can look across the last 10 years to 2013 and there's um, there's just more unrest. There's more division. Um, and I think people feel more unsafe and they have felt more unsafe even in the most recent years since COVID, um, whether that be, you know, January 6th for people on the left or the summer of 2020 riots and BLM uh, in on the right. I think there are lots of reasons people feel less safe. Um, part of that also being, you know, the justice system having uh, significant reforms in the Trump years. Uh, and, and, you know, those becoming kind of coming to fruition in, uh, in communities. But again, that's, that's a lot outside of the, the poll findings. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Just You're just saying that the, it's kind of a perfect side. storm, kind of a perfect storm of, uh, motivations for all sorts of different people to go out and buy guns in 2020. Right. Um, but, but it sounds to me like, you mean like to have that sort of shift in something as, uh, uh, polarizing, I guess, as gun ownership in the United States on a like societal scale where you're seeing, right. I mean, 10 points in a country of 350 million people, that's a lot of people buying guns, right? For the first Correct. who hadn't previously owned them. Yeah. And, and that's the shocking thing, right? Is this change, you don't see that happen in such a quick period, I guess, is, is what you're getting at, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. And it's pretty steady, you know, meaning um, we saw a pretty steady rise from the 20, 2024 to, I'm sorry, 20, 2004. So I'm going back 20 years now. Mm-hmm. 2004 to 2023, pretty steady rise among Republicans, about 9% increase. Um, among independents, it kind of bumped around, <clears throat> but it's in the mid-40s. And then the other, the other kind of main finding here is that after... Um, 20 years in the mid-30s of Democrats saying that they have a gun in the household. This poll, this one poll, had 41% of Democrats saying that that they have a gun in the household. So that's where a lot of the increase is coming from uh, since even since 2019. Right. Yeah. Huge, huge increase among Democrats. And uh, and not, you know, I do obviously want to put the caveats, as you mentioned earlier, that this is a single poll. Um, So, you know, you know, I know everybody can just draw complete concrete conclusions out of a single poll, but it is, uh, I think, a, a well done poll that has a history to it. And you have these trends that you can look at and 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 there's still takeaways you can have that are that are based in, uh, you know, in reality and not just guessing, I guess, or a little little firmer evidence here. 
but yeah, that sure. drew, that... And also we're doing this, this poll the same way every month for, mm. you know, 20 years. Um, I mean, obviously our methodology changes some to, to keep up with things like cell phones or whatever, but, um, you know, these, this is a very solid piece of research that is, that is done very, very meticulously. Right. So it's just, it's just one poll. It matters. It's just one poll, but it's apples to apples comparisons that we're yes. doing inside of this one poll. Okay. Uh, that huge increase among Democrats also is interesting for another reason, which is uh, the, the demographic drive of that. You know, you're seeing, I think it was a 17 point increase in uh, African Americans who obviously tend to self identify as Democrats much more often. Uh, 17% increase from just 2019 in yeah. gun ownership among that group, right? Correct. Yeah, they went from 24% to 41%. Um, and and sometimes, you know, again, subgroups can change. Um, we, you know, when you have um, uh, the, the black voter population is very homogenous, meaning <clears throat> from poll to poll to poll, there are very, very... Uh, um, Good group to to gauge, you know, is something changing or is or are things, um, you know, you know, because they don't change that much. They're just they're very reliable. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, so, like their politics are very reliable. Their economic attitudes are very reliable. Um, these types of demographics are very reliable. Uh, they're thirteen, twelve, or thirteen percent of our sample. And uh, but they're a very reliable group to look at trends among. And so this group, uh, that change was, you know, again, that was just a, an important finding. And then the other part of it was where um, some of uh, some of these increases happened. But we like to look at the country based in um, broken out into different county types. And so we look at core urban counties, those are the counties where like the 25 biggest cities exist. Um, then we look at the urban ring, which are the little counties, not little, but the counties that are around those large urban centers. And then we have a large swath of the country that's the outer burbs. So that's like 40% of the population lives in that place. And they are the places between the rural and the urban ring. And then you, of course, you have the rural uh, areas. Um, this growth in gun ownership is happening not in the urban core. So while it's happening among African-Americans and Democrats who uh, index higher in the urban core, um, those people groups are not um, uh, the, the people that are owning guns are outside the urban core. So it's, it's uh, African-American and, uh, and Democrats in urban ring, outer burbs and where they exist in rural. Uh, areas, although rural areas are much wider and much more Republican. Um, Interesting. But we did see, we still saw increases from 2019 because this isn't like isolated to Democrats and, and African Americans. In yeah. rural communities and rural counties, the the percent of gun ownership went from 62 percent, meaning six in ten rural households have a gun, to 73. So they're they're increasing as well. Um, outer suburbs went from 52 to 59, so another seven-point increase. And then the urban ring went from 32 to 40, so uh, an eight-point increase. But in the urban core, those again, those big uh, big city counties, 
it only went from 37 to 40, which is really margin of error. I mean, right. And a lot of right. it is in that margin, but it's, it's notable, notable that the groups with the largest, um, increase are, are not the places where they're increasing are not like where you consider their to index the highest, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's more, uh, black Americans in the suburbs than it is black Americans in, uh, in the cities themselves. Yeah. Are, and the way that that impacts or kind I guess of, to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, and, and obviously the, it's not just them, <laughs> Uh, yeah. the, the one of the really interesting things that you brought that you made uh, the point that you made there at the end was it, you, these are where you're seeing the largest increases, uh, which is fascinating. But also you're still seeing increases in places where people already own guns at really high rates. Um, right. So it's sort of an across the board thing. I guess it goes back to that that perfect storm analogy early. Like everybody had a pretty good reason to go out and buy a gun and they might have been very different reasons or even conflicting reasons. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and so that really drove this up. Um, but it had the biggest percentage effect, I guess, uh, among certain, you know, these particular demographics we're talking about here, minorities living in, uh, you know, the collar counties around Philadelphia or something like that. Right. It sounds like what you're talking about. Exactly. Um, what you're talking about. Yes. You, but yeah. you know, I would just add one other point, how this, how this translates, uh, politically is, mm -hmm. um, this isn't the only place where you see like, um, you know, black suburban, Hispanic suburban, um, uh, especially men, how, where they, you see them moderating or shifting. Um, they have much lower ratings for, for Biden. You know, they have, they're much more conflicted about the democratic party now than, than they ever have been. And that really came in the era of Trump where, mm -hmm. you know, he, for good or ill, and no matter how you feel about it, you know, he just he performed better in 2022. Republicans performed better among especially Hispanic men, but also with black men. And it's marginal. But those margins make a difference when you're talking about, you know, a national uh, a national election or even a statewide election that's won by the scantest of margins, you know, two or one point or even, you know, fractional points. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I want to get into that. Like, like Florida, it's not just Trump, like. DeSantis won Miami-Dade County. I mean, mm -hmm. that hasn't happened, I don't know if ever, um, for a Republican, but certainly not in the modern era. And he won the state by like 22 points, which is unheard of. So yeah, yeah. and, and, and all translates or, or piggybacks on the political shifting that's happening. Right, right. That makes sense. And it could be one of the things driving it too, but that that's where I want to go to next here, because uh, one of the other really uh, great things about this poll is is how much it dives into the politics of uh, these gun owners, uh, because this is this sort of, a, I don't know, maybe a unified theory about the surge in gun ownership that exists in pro-gun circles now, uh, where, you know, millions of people became gun owners for the first time. Gun owners tend to uh, vote more pro-gun than non-gun owners, if, you know, to put it in extremely simple terms. They tend to dislike new gun, more gun restrictions. They tend to uh, prefer looser gun laws than people who don't have a gun in the home. Uh, and that is also something you find in this survey itself. Uh, so the idea goes, at plus all these new gun owners are from these demographics that traditionally, uh, at least on the demographic level, not necessarily individually, obviously, but we're talking about big groups of people, they tend to vote more democratic. And so the, 
some people, I, I think, had the idea that this was going to, uh, you know, turn people overnight into party line Republican voters because that's the ostensibly pro-gun party uh, in our two-party system. There's very big contrast on policy, certainly between the two parties when it comes to guns at this point, and it's pretty stark and everybody knows it. Um, and, you know, I don't, that obviously hasn't happened uh, to a certain extent. Uh, you know, obviously you didn't have all these new gun owners immediately become reliable Republican voters. Um, but perhaps uh, I've always thought at least that what makes more sense is over time, you'll see some of these new gun owners change their position on guns at least. And that could have an effect uh, at the, the very least in re uh, democratic circles sure. um, where they, there's some more moderation because the party itself has, has moved really to the left on the issue of the last decade or so. Um, and we'll, you know, I, I don't know that we've seen that effect yet. And these numbers in here might explain why. So can you, you know, one of the things that I notice when I look at it and I want you, I want to get your understanding of this, it sure seems like um, Democrats are driving the, for the most part, this huge increase in gun ownership among voters. But at the same time, they're actually becoming, um, more it's uh the, when you the, when you ask them the question of whether they're more concerned about the government going too far with gov gun regulation or not going far enough they've actually moved democrats as a whole as they've become uh more likely to own guns are actually more concerned that the government will be uh too loose in in their gun restrictions yeah. is that an accurate reading of these this part yeah. so i mean there's two things that really drive uh, opinion on gun rights. One is having a gun in the household, and two is your political affiliation. And when we combine those two things and we look at Democrats who have a, a gun in the household or Republicans who have a gun in the household, um, it doesn't override their politics, mm -hmm. meaning they will vote their partisan, their partisan leaning over whether or not they have a gun in their household. So it continues Another way to think about it is partisanship continues to divide gun owners on gun ownership as much as it does non-gun owners um, on gun ownership. Okay. It doesn't putting a putting a gun in a responsible American's hand does not make them a Republican. Uh, and, and you know, look, there's. And doesn't, but it also doesn't even seem to necessarily totally change their mind on the core question. As long as they, I, I guess we are talking about people who are self-identifying with one party or another. So if you sure. consider yourself strongly enough to say to a pollster that you are a Democrat, uh, the fact that you own a gun doesn't necessarily change your concept of the policy implications. Right. And I think if you think of that through, you know, if they were able to uh, attain, obtain a gun, um, then what, you know, do they believe that the government's being too harsh about gun ownership, right? Mm. They could say, well, yeah. I got one. It wasn't that hard. Um, mm. and, or, you know, it was adequately hard if you live in a state like California or something like that, like it was hard enough that I'm, I feel good about the level. Um, and I don't want it to be looser than that. So you could, you can come at it from both ways. I mean, mm. um, when I, Purchase firearms for myself. I, I was had I purchased one on a weekend, and I had to wait um, until you know after uh, a waiting period. And I thought that was a little bit stupid, but 
you know, that's me as a Republican, you know, in my personal opinion. I would say from the poll, the other thing that we need to keep in mind is there's very few people that make political decisions based just on the gun issue. It's like 9% right. on that in our poll, about 9% of people tell us that gun, gun rights uh, or gun uh, uh, restrictions are the single, like the most important thing about their vote, meaning if they they would vote for or against the candidate, regardless of party, based on that 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 point of view. So compare that to other issues like uh, protecting democracy and constitutional rights. That's like 19% of the population say that, yeah, that's the most important thing for them. And another large issue like um, and divisive issue like abortion, that's 18% of the of the country uh, or of voters. And again, and Another one that's above guns is immigration and border security. So there's right. lots of different things people weigh in their poli- in their politics, and guns not the top thing. Yeah, guns, and you see this a lot in in polling. Guns tend to be uh, maybe a second level issue, I guess, or, or uh, in the middle. Yeah, you know, they're not usually at the very bottom when when it comes to voter motivation or single, you know, your single most important issue questions in a lot of a lot of public polling. But sure. they're not usually the number one issue. Sometimes they'll, you know, it depends on what the public's focused on. I guess at any given moment, sometimes they shoot up a little bit higher. Sure. Although usually that tends to be after mass shootings. Yeah, uh, I would say so. Um, yes. Although it could be also if there, I, I imagine if there was, uh, for instance, a, a major gun ban was signed into law, the number might shoot up for other for, yeah, because of that as not well. Not to take us on a tangent, but when when the uh, abortion law was signed. It used to be not the law. Sorry, when the abortion the decision Supreme Court off, case. Yeah, uh, it used to be that the single issue abortion voter was a you know deep red Republican. But the next survey, I mean, that was for twenty years. That if you're a single issue, you were voting Republican, conservative, Fox News watching. You know, it was deep. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the Dobbs decision came, in the very next survey we did, the single issue, the same question. The single issue abortion voters said, yep, that's the issue that I'll vote for based on that issue. Nothing else. They were liberal blue, you know, uh, college educated women, which is, you know, not the Republican base. Um, So it was crazy. I mean, but they can change like that when laws change or something dramatic happens. Um, Which makes sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a what huge, huge finding in, in, a, in a poll in 2022 that we did for NBC as well. In fact, I kind of wonder if, uh, you know, the Supreme Court ruling that came out alongside Dobbs in Bruin, the major gun case that they did, which uh, really ex- expands uh, the courts recognized um, Second Amendment protections, uh, at least because uh, I, I people will debate whether what the Second Amendment protects and what doesn't. Supreme Court said now explicitly that it protects gun carry. And, uh, you know, you do wonder if that has a deflating effect on uh, gun rights, act, you know, gun rights activism, right? How much people put that at the top of their list if they think this, it's their, it's what they want is secured by this ruling. They may not have it as much of a priority in their voting, you know, list. Yeah. Um, that that's speculation. In just... 16 years of doing this and in this, especially in this time period, between basically the Obama era um, 
or the late late Bush, early Obama era is when I started um, doing polling is angry people vote like angry mm -hmm. people vote. And so when the abortion rights come under attack um, and that's how the, you know, the people see it who's, you know, uh, who got very active or very fired up about it when they feel like their rights are under attack, they're going to go out and, and get active. So that happened yeah. in 2022. Um, that happened in a large part in some of these little, I don't know if you follow this very closely, but some of these little elections, Ohio had an yeah. election about abortion rights and kind special of elections and, and yeah, special elections. Yeah. I mean, people are fired up. And so I think you're right though. If you expand the, um, it, it sounds sounds like I don't I haven't followed it very closely, but it sounds like the Supreme Court said that constitutional carry is basically protected. Uh, gun carry, public gun carry, you know that they, they struck down New York's law. In effect, they've made they also changed the test for how to determine if a gun law is constitutional, and so you're seeing a lot of gun laws come under question. The current laws. Yeah, uh, at the federal and state level. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's had a big effect. And effect. maybe that's maybe that plays into how people perceive the issue um, as well. You know, you can I mean, I think what you're saying is just like a, a pretty good uh, view of how politics works generally. Like people uh, the reason that a person's single most important issue changes all the time is because the perception of what's uh, being attacked or, or not is changes all the time as well, based on, you know, what happens in yeah. life. Right. So um, that certainly makes us. And, th and that may be one of the things about having a stalemated uh, gun debate in the United States is it probably pushes the importance of the issue a little bit further down for most people because they either uh, don't, well, they don't expect things are going to change. Um, one way or the other, and whether they're like that or don't like that is another question, but they still have that ultimate um, uh, conclusion, and it might drive down what they think matters to their yeah. vote. Um, the narrative I, definitely, the, def the, the narrative, especially from this poll, um, where we talked about government going too far or not far enough, you know, uh, that we are stalemated. We are basically split even as a country around those issues. Yeah. And um, that can, you know, that can get kind of like, could be a bit of a slog when you have to fight, 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 and nobody's changing their position. It's in, when we see polling that's like, well, actually, you know, 75% uh, of people support banning firearms. You know, you see that stuff from time to time. And it's usually because people aren't aren't actually digging into the the question, uh, or they're using terminology that's confusing or misleading. Um, right. So, like, yeah, you, you see that sometimes in in uh, actual uh, ballot initiatives too. There, were the universal background checks always rates really highly, right? In polling, probably because a lot of people don't understand how the background check system works, and they just like background checks as a concept. Uh, but in practice, when Maine tried to do it as a ballot initiative, it, it failed, even though every national poll will put it at 80 to 90 percent support. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good point. What, one thing I want to go back to, though, I guess on the, in this idea of that we're split is, uh, you know, when I look at these numbers, and I look at the trend here for the the question on whether the government is going too far or not far enough in, with gun regulation. Uh, what I really notice is more less of a change. There wasn't much of a change 
between when you did that poll in 2019 and and this year, uh, despite this huge increase in in gun ownership, um, you know, there's a four point change. Uh, now it's almost exactly even when before there was a five point advantage to uh, concerns the government was going to go wasn't going to do enough to restrict firearms. But, uh, you know, even that's not a wild change from 2015. Uh, I, you know, there was an eight point swing to the, or, the, the, you know, there was concerns were that it, the government would go too far, one by eight points in that one. Uh, you know, that's all within, you know, eight, 10 points. The real swing is from the 90s, what it looks like to me, uh, where there was a 23 point um agreement that the, the the concern was that government wasn't doing enough um and a lot of, and really it, it seems like most of that swing from 25 23 points uh, to the idea that the government's not doing enough to more more or less even today a one point i think advantage for not doing enough um that's really driven by republicans have changed the most uh looking at this that you know they were plus three on the idea that the government wasn't doing enough in 95 and now they're plus 70 on the idea, the concern that they're going to do too much. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, it's much bigger than any of the other changes. It's fairly animating, uh, I guess, for Republicans, um, as a, as an issue. Yeah. Um, I, but I think, you know, it's hard to really make a strong, it's hard to make comparisons back to 20 to 1995. Um, you know, we're coming up on that being 30 years ago and you know, mm-hmm. a lot of things do change. I mean, we had, um, we had a kind of this, the beginning of the spate of school shootings, mass school shootings in 99, starting about 99 with the uh, Columbine. Yeah. Um, you had nine 11, which, you know, changed our security mindset. Crime rate was much higher back in the nineties too. What's that? The, the crime rate was much higher in the nineties than it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although that was one of the things that was different about 2020 and 2021 as well is that the murder rate went way up from where it had been. Yeah. Um, another reason that people probably went and bought guns. Uh, but the one thing, uh, you know, uh, and obviously today you see Democrats and Republicans are almost the exact opposite. <laughs> They're basically mirrors of each other on that question. You know, it's a 70% uh, difference for Republicans who are worried the government will go too far. And it's a 71% difference for Democrats who are worried the government won't do enough, um, which is remarkable. And then independents sit right in the middle of that uh, at almost even, uh, which is just a fascinating uh, little uh, demonstration of polarization in the United States, I guess. But uh, uh, the the last thing I want to ask you real quick is that, you know, I, I, I know I, Looking at this, there's good reason to maybe discount the idea that the rise in gun ownership is going to have a political effect at all. I, you know, but uh, there is some obviously um, it's not nearly as stark of a contrast between just generic gun owning households and non gunning households. But there is some difference between, you know, Democratic non gunning owning households and Democratic gun owning households. It's about eight points difference in how they view the issue. And and same thing for Republicans, almost exactly the same thing for Republicans. So, you know, it still seems plausible that uh, over time, perhaps you're going to maybe see an effect on uh, gun politics in either party pushed more towards uh, gun owners and people who don't want to see as many restrictions. Do you think that's still 
a viable theory looking at this, or are those numbers just too small? Well, it's well because you got forty one percent of Democrats now saying that they have a gun in the household. You know, it's it's not a small chunk of 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 their um, of their party. I think the the, the near term impact that that can have is that maybe um, maybe some of the uh, maybe some of the concerns around guns or or the restrictive more restrictive policies get watered down. And maybe the rhetoric gets a little bit toned down um, as as interparty they're having a conversation that has more voices that could be supportive of um, of gun uh, gun ownership. I mean, the fringe on either side, you know, I think will always exist. Um, and the fringe on the left saying that like no guns, get rid of them all. I think I you know I don't know that they have a lot of power. Um, but maybe maybe those efforts and the, the efforts in state legislatures and you know um, will have um, a little bit less punch in them uh, because of because there's a growing sense of well gun ownership's okay for me why isn't it okay for others um, the partisanship though I, just going back to your point about you know the polar opposite. Uh, kind of opinion among Republicans versus Democrats on this issue. That chart that you looked at is probably like every, almost every chart that I see bipartisanship when it comes to any issue of importance in America. We are so deeply divided by partisanship. It is um, almost like, it's almost a surprise when things aren't uh, that deeply divided. When we find something we actually agree with, but most of the stuff we agree with are pretty negative, like that we're in decline or the next generation is not going to be as great as the, as, as the last or that things are headed in the wrong direction. So not to leave you in a bummer position. But, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's reality, right? Unfortunately, it's what the yeah. polling shows. Um, I guess we shouldn't be terribly surprised. Uh, but yeah, that that is depressing to some degree. I do still think that um, while the the contrast, it is interesting that the contrast between just gun owners and non-gun owners, when you ignore the partisan angle, is yeah. pretty stark. It's it's what, uh, how many points is that? Probably um, 60. Yeah. 60, 60 point spread. Right. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty huge. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, it's exactly 60. Right. Um, and then the, the gap between... Um, you know, uh, da- when you add in the partisanship, it's only like eight points. Um, that that does speak a lot about how much people are more dedicated to the party they're in than they are to, you know, right. their guns, I guess, one way or the other. But I do think there is that does still show you some some room where there is potential for movement towards, I guess, uh, or away from stricter gun control policies. Uh you know, overall, that's what I expect from from the. I mean, that's what you'd expect just seeing more people owning guns. It's, I guess, the takeaway is maybe don't count on that effect as much as you might think. Yeah, I think it's a long term. I think it may be a long term play. I wouldn't expect mm-hmm. it on a short 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 term. Maybe, like I said, it's a softening of position. But again, politics are, you know, in, entrenched interests and 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 you know, very. Uh, People look, people, let's be frank, people make a lot of money 
on both sides of the gun issue, on the both sides of the abortion issue, on both sides of almost any issue out there, people are out there, you know, advocating and uh, creating, um, you know, material and everything else. There's a lot to, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot at stake more than just the, the political positions, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, it's a whole in- whole industry affected as well, and then yeah, um, and byproducts of that too. So, um, yeah, no, look, I appreciate you coming on and give, walking us through this poll because I really think that one, the top lines are super important, but also the the details in this were really interesting and speak to a lot of the stuff I think uh, we've been looking at in gun politics over the last three years. You know, trying to. It's and it's good to have more evidence one way or the other on these things. And and this evidence is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Uh the way it all breaks down. You know, way more guns, but uh and most of that's coming from Democrats, but they're not really changing their mind about guns. In fact, they seem to be getting more uh res- supportive of the idea of of restrictions. Uh so pretty that's that's pretty interesting and, and odd. Um not what you'd expect, not the st- sort of the stereotypical outcome, but but yeah, the, and then you dig in the deeper, a little bit deeper, and I think there's even more to unpack. So uh, I really appreciate you spending some time going over with a, uh, with us about this because you know you're one, you're one of the people who did the poll, and so who better to to do that with? Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciated talking to you. And, and next time we'll ask the question, I'll, I'll come back on and, and share what happens next. Yeah, that sounds great. I really appreciate it. And if people want to follow. Uh, your guys work at uh, uh, how can they do that? Where 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 can they find uh, your polling? Uh, Twitter uh, X. Um, you can follow uh, at Micah C Rob, M I C A H C R O B, and uh, our company's Twitter handle uh, X handle is uh, uh, P O Strategies, I believe. So it's a P O S Strategies. So um, yeah, give us a follow. It's um, uh, we we don't just talk about guns. Obviously we, we talk about lots of uh, polling data and um, we usually have pretty interesting stuff. So love to, and, love to get some more followers. Yeah. And a lot of your, your work is published by NBC and CNBC. We do the polling, the polling. for them. Yeah. But the majority of our work is for candidates, associations, businesses, um, uh, and groups that, um, that do polling on their issues as well. So we're, the media okay. side is fantastic, but it's, uh, just a small portion of, of the work that we get to do. All right. Wonderful. Well, yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back on once uh, you guys do another poll like this. Um, and, and yeah, we're going to head over to our news update now. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Jake? Doing pretty good. Can't complain. <laughs> good. Uh, I guess we never have a bad week because uh, uh, we're always doing pretty good. These That's things. what we're here for, to bring positivity to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> uh, you know, earlier in the week, not as well, was not doing as well, thanks to the, the Eagles getting crushed. Oh, That yeah. was not fun to watch. But the Flyers have, are shockingly good for some reason, uh, second in the Metro Division. So all my emotions rest on, you know, the outcome of Philly sports games. Uh, and you really just swerve from cocky to depressed all the time when when you're a Philly sports fan. So, uh, 
It really depends on the day and what game just happened. But um, right now, because the Flyers won last night, feeling all right. Things are good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything uh, anything fun planned for this weekend? Any any uh, Maybe the range or going somewhere or anything like that? I actually am uh, trying to put together a trip to the range this weekend. Uh, a couple of buddies of mine that I usually shoot with, we haven't gone in a while. So uh, we want to go check out this new range. This kind of fancy new range opened up about 20 minutes from my apartment. It's a mm. uh, nice indoor range, but it has a restaurant attached to it. So after you shoot, you can go sit down. And I think there's like a either a brewery or a distillery attached to the restaurant so you can shoot. And once you're done shooting, you can go have like a nice meal and drink uh, craft brew, beer. And so thinking about checking that out. Yeah, you know, that seems to be the trend in the industry. We we just got a, a, a new super high-end fancy uh, range that they, they call these, they used to call these things uh, years ago, gun tree clubs, right? I don't, I don't mm-hmm. even know that that's really the right term for it. It's more like fast casual version of a, of a gun range, if that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Like if you're just trashy uh, indoor range that goes out to 15 yards and doesn't have heating or air conditioning is is your normal fast food version. A lot of these new ranges, it's like they're not five star restaurant style things, most of them, but they're like they're like nice. You know what I mean? Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah. No, I, that's that's sort of the vibe I'm getting from this place too. Is where it's like yeah, it's nice. It's just <laughs> compared yeah. to what, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not a it's not a country club in the sense that it's not going to cost right. you twenty thousand dollars to join, right? But right. it, but it might cost you. It's certainly going to cost a little more, and it's going to have a lot more to do. Like they want they want you to not just shoot there, but also like the place by me in in Loudoun County, Virginia. It's called XCal. Super super nice, brand new facility. Uh, it's got a gym attached to it. It's got a uh, you know like a food court area and and um, a nice big uh, not just gun store but also merchandise uh, area. So like it, it you go there for more than just to you know, shoot 100, 200 rounds at the range in an hour. Like you're supposed to, it's like a destination now. Um, and I've noticed that in a lot of newer ranges that I've been to around the country. One just opened up by the farm in Pennsylvania. Um, it's called uh, Mainline Armory in Fraser, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's similar, similar idea. Just really uh, it's very high end range. doesn't have a gym, but it does have like a very, upscale gun store attached to it with much with merchandising and and yeah so it's just uh i don't know it seems like the market for ranges has has really moved up uh, over the last 10 even just five years because all these ranges that we're talking about are from the last couple of years yeah it is interesting capturing a new uh market share of new gun owners that maybe want different kind of range experience so interesting yeah yeah, a little more upscale experience. That seems to be the trend. Because uh, I haven't seen any, like, you know, bargain basement ranges open around anywhere yeah. near where I live. So I, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's just based on where I where I particularly go. But, uh, I mean, I also saw this in when I was out in Pittsburgh speaking at uh, Carnegie Mellon University a couple of years ago. They had a super high-end range there, Keystone uh, range, I believe it's called same same idea so uh yeah it's, it's, I, I like it <laughs> you know what i mean like it's nice these ranges are like you want to go in there it's not just uh you know it's it is what it is and you if i want to shoot i gotta go where you know bear out the the heat even the place that by me that wasn't 
nicer has now upgraded itself to have heating and air conditioning in the range um, to, I think just to keep up with these other places. So I mean, good. These positive movements in the industry, I would say. I'll say I'll like it until they start charging me $40 to reserve a a lane for an hour or something. That's, that's where you get diminishing value, but that's true. So far so good. Depends on, on how much they're, they're charging for this upgraded experience, but Although I don't think it's been in my experience, the prices haven't been crazy. You know, yeah. Like I think they they'll they'll they do like a tiered membership stuff a lot of these places. So if you want the the highest end experience, it's probably pretty expensive. But I still think they keep it relatively reasonable for you know just you want to go in and shoot for an hour. Um. So uh, I think this positive positive movement speaks maybe sure. to yeah where the customer base is at now, um, at least in the sort of suburban, exurban areas where we are, right? Um, right. Either way, of course, in the rural areas, they have to, you could just go out and shoot. <laughs> yeah. To go to a range, which, frankly, uh, I'd prefer that if I could <laughs> uh, you just have a nice range on your own property. That's that's the dream right there. But yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I do have an update on my on my gear, have you gotten any new any new guns or anything? Yeah, no new no new firearm purchases lately. Yeah, hmm. nothing exciting. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I don't. I haven't gotten any new guns. Although I, there's lots that I I want. Uh, I'll say there's plenty as, that I want. I can tell yeah, you that as always. <laughs> but uh, I have been. Yeah, you know, we've talked about my concealed carry situation uh, before on the show a bunch of times, and I figured. Might as well give an update because I have changed up things a little bit and I'm probably going to change a little more in the near future here. You know, I'm not a gun reviewer, right? This is, I'm a political reporter guy, but I do carry every day uh, wherever I can. And um, so I, I figure this is helpful to just normal people who want to hear about the experience. But I, yeah, so I had the Filster Enigma, which I really enjoyed for, uh, especially for someone my body shape, which is not. Uh, male model body shape, if that, uh, to put it lightly, but, um, you know, I never really carried appendix before I got that holster system and I do like it, but, you know, in the end of the day, appendix carry, I think overall is still going to be a harder thing to pull off than strong side, uh, with a normal outfit, uh, even with the best system. And so I still, I still honestly prefer strong side carry, but I want to have, you know, that ideal um, Goldilocks holster that's that does all the things you need a holster to do, like cover your trigger guard and and um, and, you know, secure your firearm well, but also be really comfortable. So um, I had and, uh, you know, there's hybrids get a lot of they don't do a lot. Most hybrids don't do most of those because they do the comfort thing. They don't do the other stuff very well. Uh, and so I, I actually ended up doing, buying the, uh, this is called the black arch protus. I believe this is, um, this was actually the one like hybrid holster that active self-protection recommends, uh, cause John, uh, Korea has a very low opinion of, of hybrid holsters for the reasons mentioned earlier there, but they do recommend this one because it, it's a bit special. It has uh, a sort of three quarter kydex shell on it so that when you uh put the gun in the holster it actually clicks in and fully covers the the trigger so um 
you know, it's not going anywhere. It, it stays in there. And, um, but it's still nice, you know, like suede backing and uh, very comfortable to carry. So I've enjoyed that. It's basically replaced the, you know, I had that alien gear that didn't actually fit properly over the optic on this, this, the factory optic on this six hour uh, P365 X macro. But um, I like this one even better than a lot better than the, than the uh, alien gear. And so that's what I've been carrying and it's worked out really well for me so far. Uh, also the, if you remember, I had issues with these magazines, right? <laughs> um, that was the whole point of buying the X macro for me was that right. get the 17 rounds because you know, you watch some of those active self-protection videos. And if you don't watch active self-protection and you carry, you really should, uh, you should listen to the podcast. I do the news update for them. If you don't know that already, uh, but they, the podcast, the main part of the podcast is, is self-defense stories and interviews with people who are involved in a lot of the videos that the YouTube channel shows. So super high quality content, uh, in my opinion, and, and really useful for anybody who uh, either is a cop or a concealed carrier, or really just interested in self-defense generally. They don't just talk about uh, incidents that involve firearms. So a lot of really good information over there. But one of the things they show, they have this great compilation on, they have a uh, uh, their own app that uh, has a monthly uh, membership as well over there, but they have these compilations of like key points that they make from watching all these videos of self-defense incidents. And one of them is like, how much capacity do you really need? And the point of the video using actual real world incidents that you watch, right, is that you kind of can't have enough capacity. <laughs> uh, some of these, sometimes, you know, and we've talked about this on the show when we've done these um, gun surveys, like we had Professor William English from George Washington University in his survey. And most self-defense incidents, most uh, gun defensive use incidents require zero shots to be fired, right? Uh, and then the percentage gets smaller and smaller as many shots go up from there. And so it's not that you're very likely to run into a situation where you need 17, 18 rounds, but it certainly happens. That's the other thing. Like it does happen. And so that's my logic for why I want to carry uh, a lot of rounds, but also I want to be able to wear my normal outfits, normal clothes. And so I want a gun that's pretty concealable. And that's, that was the beauty of the, the X macro. But if you remember when I got when I got it and I got this these magazines, they were the springs were so tight on these that um, when I loaded them full to 17 and then tried to rack around into the slide, you could do it, but it was real hard. And it made me worried that, you know, I'm carrying 17 plus one, you know, one in the chamber and I fire that first round. Maybe that second round isn't going to actually. Uh, strip off and go into the gun correctly. And I'm going to have, you know, <laughs> a misfeed on the second round, which is the probably one of the other than the first round not going off. That's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah, right? no doubt. <laughs> um, if you're actually having to shoot at somebody, that means you're in a deadly force scenario where your life is at risk um, and your gun stops working. It's hard to imagine a scarier thing. But anyway, the good news is that plus like at that point I was like, well, all right, I could load it to 16, but then why did I buy this guy? <laughs> you know, I could have gotten a, a P365 XL, which is 15 rounds and smaller than this. 
uh, you know, and much less money too at the time. Uh, and so I was just kind of annoyed. Like the 17 is the whole, that's the whole selling point of this thing. Uh, but luckily they have broken in. You just, just need to keep 17 rounds in there for a while. And eventually it loosens up enough to where it'll, you don't have that same issue, uh, anymore. So I'm, I'm happy to report that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the update. Also the optic, uh, I replaced the battery, you know, last time, I think when I had to go up to the farm for the murder situation, <laughs> um, and it stayed, it stayed alive. I was at this point, I'm kind of wondering if maybe it was the crappy batteries that it was shipped with. And I put a cheap battery in there too. So could have been partially my fault on that front. I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, I'll have to keep carrying it and see how long the battery lasts. It's only been a couple months since I put it in there. So it's unclear to me yet if it's the, if it was a battery issue or if it's the optic itself is just chewing through batteries way too fast. Um, I probably, I'm, I'm, I've asked for an optic for Christmas, so I don't think I'm going to stick with this SIG, uh, Romeo elite or what Romeo zero elite. I think this one's called, um, I just think, honestly, I don't know if, have you looked at the optic mar market lately? Uh, a little bit here and there. Uh, I know we were talking a little bit before we recorded just about all the crazy new offerings that are just flooding the market just because of how popular they are now. But uh, I haven't followed it too closely just because I've been pretty happy with the, the one that I have. I only have one pistol that's drilled and, and tapped for a, for an optic. So what a, what do you have again? It's a Holosun SRS. Mm -hmm. So it's it's one of the Holosun ones and it's made to go. You don't have to do like a base plate. It just integrates directly into the footprint of a Glock MOS mm -hmm. uh, slide. So. And I've been yeah. pretty happy with that so far. Yeah, I don't, I don't want a foot plate. I don't want one of those plates either, adapter plates. Um, I think that this is a, what's like a shield RMS cut on these SIGs, I think. So they make tons of optics for that. Thankfully, there's there's like the RMR cut and then the RMS C cut, I think it's called. Because uh, the industry has has kind of standardized from yeah. the last couple of years. And, uh, and it's really matured the offerings. Because I, I remember thinking like a couple of years ago and even um, talking about it, uh, at least on Twitter, like these, uh, I, I had the same view of suppressors and uh, red dots a couple of years ago where it was like, why are these so expensive? Uh, suppressors, I guess you could at least say a suppressor is literally just a metal tube with baffles in it. It's the same exact thing as your muffler, uh, except small <laughs> enough to fit on a gun. Right. Uh, so why are they so expensive for what they actually are? Uh, there's no moving parts or anything, right? Um, I think part of that is just because they're regulated by the NFA. And so yeah. that keeps demand lower than it otherwise would be. And if you had higher demand, maybe you would, uh, you know, benefit from some of that uh, uh, scaling of production and you get uh, lower prices is what I guess. So that, you know, they kind of have to keep prices a little higher to keep their profit margins, you know, thick enough to to make sense. That's part of what I'm guessing for, I'm sure, maybe we can have someone on the show to do through, do a whole episode on suppressors. That might be a good idea. But uh, yeah, so that's one explanation. Red dots, I mean, it's a laser that points at a piece of glass. Um, and they were, a couple of years ago, you couldn't find um, anything that wasn't cheap garbage for less than like five or $600. Now they still, you still find red dots at that price point, you know, Trigicons and 
and um, and some of the other high-end dots that do have really good reputations. Uh, but a couple of years ago, you couldn't find anything less than like $400 that was any good. Now, uh, I mean, the market's kind of flooded with what seem to be really solid um, low-end options. Uh, I think Sealy is a brand, is Chinese. There's a lot of these Chinese brands. And, you know, it's one thing, house, a lot of them are made in China outside of like Chitikan or, or some of the SIGs, I think. Um, but at this point, there seem to be way more options for reasonably priced red dots that are also very durable and hold a zero uh, through all kinds of abuse. So um, I'm pretty happy to see that. And so my, my, my thought on the market wasn't totally crazy. I got I did get mocked for that at the time because I bought a cheap one and then it didn't fit on my gun. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, you live and learn. And sometimes clearly it is better to just spend more for the higher quality thing. I'm sure that I'm sure the uh, expensive optics from three or four years ago are are still going fine. Uh, whereas the cheap optics from three or four years ago, probably all uh, done by now. But these newer ones, I mean, the market seems to have matured and it seems like you can actually get a, a really solid red dot uh that's in line with a lot of what hollow point sells, which hollow point there, I believe their optics are made in China as well, but people can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Uh, most of these brands I think are made in China. And so, yeah, you can buy a China and a lot of them tend to be copycats of each other, you know, copycat designs. You see that in a lot of industries, obviously, but so uh, either way, I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try one. I was thinking of doing hollow sun. I think I'm going to try Sealy is the, the brand that seems to have, uh, a lot of pretty good reviews out there on durability and and has all the features that you'd expect from uh, the middle of the market, the four four five hundred dollar optics. So uh, we'll see how that goes because I mean it's going to be hard not to be better than this <laughs> dot that came on this gun. Uh, Sig's got even nicer uh, has like some pretty nice offerings now, but I don't think this zero elite. I don't think it has a very good reputation with anyone. It's a plastic optic with a little metal shield around it on my gun. But yeah, I mean, the, with the battery issues and uh, also it's, you have to take it off to replace the battery. The, the dot to change the brightness is on the, like right by the inner lens, which is super annoying and not really functional outside of a, you know, working on it on a bench. But uh, yeah, so we'll see how that goes. I, I'm just glad to see the markets improving. And I mean, the range experience is improving. The, our, our red dots are getting better and cheaper. Um, I don't know. This positive trends. And right now is a pretty good time to buy again because the uh, it's bad time for the industry because the, they've been they're been declining since 2020, as we've written a lot about. And one of our stories actually this week to transition smoothly into the news update that we're going to uh, go through here now is about gun sales being uh, up. Uh, you saw a year over year increase in November, but uh, they're still pretty far down from where they were in 2020 or 2021, right? So um, there are still good deals on the market for anybody who's looking right now. You can find, uh, I mean, I think my friend's buying uh, a gift of a shield plus, and I think it's like 375 on buds guns right now. So, nice. you know, you can find, you can find good deals for guns right now, which is 
great for consumers. But uh, of course, the market is, as I just mentioned, ticking back up again. So I don't know how much longer that's going to last. I was say, I could see the price increases. I'm hearing rumors from folks that are plugged in saying they're expecting price increases starting next year. So get in while yeah. you can. <laughs> yeah, right now, good time to buy. That might go away, so especially because 2024 is an election year, which is when you tend to see an upswing yeah. in uh, gun sales anyway. But um, yeah, so uh, what else do we got, though, news-wise? Yeah, so uh, heading to the links in the newsletter. Uh, the first one is some not-so-good news. comes to us from the New York Times reporting on some CDC data that uh, unfortunately shows that the firearm suicide rate as of 2022 reached its record level since the CDC has been tracking specifically the firearm suicide rate. And they note that since 2019 specifically, so between 2019 and 2022, it increased 10%. Um, so not great, uh, not a great trend, certainly, that it's going that direction. They did note, so one caveat is just that over suicides overall have been trending upwards. Uh, so they said over the last two decades, it's been about a 33% increase in suicides overall. Um, so not great, but but they did note that you know over half of those suicides involve firearms. So some not so great trends that, we, that we're seeing there in the data. Yeah, certainly. Uh, significant issue for the gun owning community and yeah. has been for a long time, right? I mean, this is, this is the way a lot of people take their lives. Um, and it's something that we have seen more efforts in recent years to, to try and um, alleviate and uh, to try to approach this from a way that's going to be encouraging to people who own guns and uh, are struggling rather than alienating or, um, or, you know, pushing them away from seeking help because that is one of the difficulties of it. Um, because somebody who's, you don't want somebody who is uh, actively having suicidal thoughts to have a firearm, but also you don't want the threat of taking their firearm away to dissuade them from seeking help. So it's a really difficult issue for sure. And, um, and uh, one where, Obviously, we need to focus more research and thought and uh, and effort into. Um, yeah, so you know, I've lost friends to to suicide, um, and uh, a very close friend. So it's 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 terrible, terrible experience, and something that um, you know we've we've talked about on the show before. There's there are groups out there like Walk the Talk um, and and a number of other firearms community led. <clears throat> uh, efforts, but, um, but yeah, clearly a lot of work left to do. Yeah, absolutely. And then sort of on a related note related to mental health and, and firearms, the trace is our other news link story we're going to talk about today. Um, they did a great report on just sort of how state law interacts with the federal prohibition on folks that have been involuntary committed. So basically what's each, they went and looked at what are each individual state's policies regarding do temporary, you know, mental health holds, does that disqualify them? And what they found is in the vast majority of states, uh, it pretty much just mirrors federal law where they, you need a court-ordered involuntary commitment for a prohibition to kick in, which is obviously pretty relevant considering the tragedy we saw in, in Lewiston. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the takeaway from that story to me was um, that it, it's very complicated uh, yeah. as to whether or not somebody who's been involuntarily committed uh actually becomes prohibited from owning guns you know that's supposed to be something that you that's a base level part of federal law but the practice of it is much more difficult than i think most people realize so that piece is really good um, you know obviously i understand that the trace you know they 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 take funding from every town 
um, and and they have a, a clear editorial point of view, uh, which um, I understand why that puts off some people. But I do think that they still produce really good reporting, um, even you know keeping that in mind. Just because somebody has a different point of view from you, doesn't mean that they're always lying about everything. You know what I mean? And and Jennifer uh, Masia, who's uh, one of the writers for this piece, is uh, also a commentator at CNN. And so I've had positive interactions with her. We'd have, probably have to have her on the show at some point um, because I do think this topic is really important. You know, I've, I've talked to uh, um, a, a mental health professional who was uh, in charge of deciding whether or not somebody gets involuntarily committed in Pennsylvania is actually one of the members and uh, of the reload. And, and yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not easy. And a lot of, as, as they talk about in the piece, you know, Oftentimes, somebody who's who's being committed is is given a choice as to whether they want to accept a voluntary commitment instead of an involuntary commitment, and um, and that can have uh, significant consequences, obviously, for uh, whether or not they can own guns after that point. And uh, of course, the priority for most mental health professionals is is in trying to help these people come through their crisis instead of focusing on um, you know their access to firearms down the line. So uh, it's 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 another one of these things that we wish is, was really easy to figure out, but in in real life is is pretty hard. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and then on to some of the stories we wrote this week, uh, we had a pretty big court case that actually came down last week, but um, we wrote about it and it's in the newsletter. Uh, a federal judge struck down the federal uh, prohibition on eighteen to twenty year olds purchasing handguns. Um, so well, that's purchasing pretty, them from licensed dealers. From dealers. It's a very, yeah, from FFLs. It's a very specific law because it's not yeah. a ban on 18 to 20-year-olds owning handguns or even buying handguns. It's on buying them from licensed dealers. So in some ways, it's uh, pretty. Uh, it's a kind of odd law because you, if you're 18 to 20-year-old in the United States and you live in a place where they don't have um, you know universal background check requirements and even places where they do, this is actually an issue in Virginia. There's a court case here over this this fact because um, uh, universal background check states they require you to go and transfer your gun through a licensed dealer, right? For when you're making a sale, um, and if you are 18 to 20 and you try to do that with the handgun, they NICS won't pro let you process that check. So you just effectively are barred from owning handguns um, outside of receiving gifts, uh, you know, from your parents or some or family members. And so that becomes a, a more significant legal challenge uh, under the Constitution. But then if you in a state where you don't have that, you can just buy guns through private sales, which uh, kind of defeats the whole concept of why this needs to happen, because then you, you're buying one without a background check, uh, you know, which goes against the argument that more people should have to get background checks. So um, but regardless, that didn't have anything to do with the ruling. The ruling was pretty straightforward uh, Bruin analysis that said these sorts of restrictions didn't exist at the founding, right? And um, therefore, this law can't stand. In fact, I think, I believe they talked about how at the founding, if you were 18, <clears throat> you were uh, basically required to own firearms because you had to uh, muster for the militia and people who were in the militia had to bring their own firearms in many cases. And it was required by law. So uh, sort of the exact opposite tradition 
I suppose, at least during the founding era, uh, than what this, this law stands out. So, uh, <clears throat> interestingly, what well, is a nationwide effect and it didn't have a stay attached to it. So, uh, but also it, extremely it, it, likely to be appealed. <laughs> I was gonna say it has since been stayed. I just I saw an update. I think yesterday. So they okay. no, the government announced they're appealing it, and a judge said, "Okay, well we'll stay it pending the appeal." So, but there was like as right. you said, when it was issued, it was interesting. There was no stay put on the the implications of the ruling. Yeah, I don't think it ever had any actual effect. I don't think Nix was ever processing anything. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Handgun purchases by by licensed dealers, but or through licensed dealers. So, uh, but yeah, that's exactly what I expected to happen. That it would be stayed upon appeal. And so, you know, if you're 18, 20 years old, um, this is, and you want to buy a handgun, that's positive news for you, but it's not something that's going to affect you immediately. That's unless you're a plaintiff in the case, perhaps, but, um, right. but yeah. So uh, just, I always wanted like, cause I know people don't, it's hard to understand how these things work sometimes. Um, and so I always want to be clear, like about the actual practical effects today. And it's, that is, uh, not going to be changing how things operate at this moment, but it very well could uh, relatively soon down the line, uh, depending on how fast this case moves. Certainly. Um, speaking of legal cases, uh, another story that we covered this week was a coalition of gun rights groups led by the California Rifle and Pistol Association are taking uh, Los Angeles County, the city of Laverne and California Attorney General Rob Bonta to court over all sorts of complaints about carry permit issuance. Um, so LA County, for example, the suit alleges has been in routinely engaging in a practice of taking 15, 16, 17 months to process people's carry permit applications, which obviously, you know, is a, a delay in some people's eyes, uh, an excessive delay. And then the city of Laverne, we've reported on previously kind of made headlines because they, once they finally had to create a carry permit process, they'd said, well, you have to pay a thousand dollars or more to just to get your permit which is another one of those things where you're putting financial burdens in the way of, of folks being able to exercise their right to carry. And then finally, they're they're going after the attorney general because California is one of two states in the entire country. Hawaii is the other one that both doesn't recognize a single other state's permit and refuses to issue under any circumstances a permit to non-residents. So it effectively completely denies the right to carry to non-residents. So all three are, are uh, coming under legal scrutiny in this case. Yeah, I think this case is is noteworthy mainly because it, it's probably the closest case we've seen to the core holdings in Bruin itself. Yeah, because that's what Bruin was about: um, gun carry permitting, right? And um, the, you know, the court struck down the May issue law that California uh, and and a number of other states had, and and it's said that shall issue permitting is okay where you know as long as you go through the process they have to give you a permit um but uh one thing you'll notice and we've talked a lot about this concurrence right in other aspects um and the, sort of the, some of the takeaways from the roberts and kavanaugh concurrence where they talked about shall issue permitting being um you know constitutionally uh Okay, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but but being okay for in theory, except if the fees are too exorbitant or the you know uh, the process is, is too onerous, right? That's basically what they said, and so um, now we have a case that's actually dealing with exactly that issue, and so it's probably one of the strongest post Bruin cases that I've seen come out 
just because it's so straightforwardly goes to the heart of what Bruin actually dealt with the facts of that case. Uh, and so I, uh, yeah, I would say they have a pretty good chance of, of winning uh, at this point, but it, you know, it also, I will, uh, at the same time, it does get into sort of the weeds of this stuff. Right. And it's like how far court's going to want to go. I, I'm sure this is kind of an outlier case. I would imagine for, uh, you know, a thousand dollar fee, it's going to be really hard for a government to justify why they need a thousand dollars to process a background check or, uh, you know, a concealed carry application that, that probably isn't going to hold up in court, but you know, how, you know what exactly are exorbitant fees? Where's that line? What is too onerous of a process? Where does that line fall? You know, what kind of training can be required? This would be another obvious uh, question. You know, how many hours of training can you require? How, can you require people to go outside? And for instance, Washington, D.C., you have to leave Washington, D.C. to actually complete the training that's required because they don't have any ranges, public ranges available in the city, and it requires a live fire aspect to your training um, to get the permit. So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of questions that I think are going to come up down the line. And this is probably going to be the first one. And it'll be interesting to, to see what the court says, uh, or if they even go that, that detailed, you know, if they try to micromanage things to that extent, or if they're just going to say, this isn't acceptable, we've got to come up with something else. Right. We'll see. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. That is, that's something definitely worth keeping an eye on. Um, and then the final thing we want to talk about today is sort of a, an odd political maneuver on behalf of uh, Senate Democrat Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, moving to bring an assault weapon ban bill to the floor uh, in sort of a bizarre way. He didn't actually call for a roll call vote. You, you kind of covered this whole saga and you, you tell us you know, what happened there. Yeah, it's not necessarily bizarre. It's more like uh, in a way that wasn't designed to actually pass, uh, right? Like Chuck Schumer knew this bill wasn't going to pass. And I think he knew that this bill probably couldn't even get 50 votes. Um, one of the weird things about it, and I, you know, we've written a, a, quite a bit about this over at the Reload. So uh, if people want to go a little more in depth here, they should check out the members piece that I wrote uh, on, on Friday uh, or any of the pieces that we've written about this the last week or so. Because if you remember, um, the week before, there was a new rebranding effort for the assault weapons ban that was introduced by, you know, Senator Angus King from Maine and three moderate Democrats, or at least more moderate Democrats, uh, people who hadn't officially co-sponsored an assault weapons ban before. Um, and so they brought out this new bill, the Go Safe Act, the uh, gas operated semi-automatic uh, firearms. What does the E and Go Safe stand for? Do exclusion. You know? Exclusion. It is exclusion. Okay. Yeah. Gives you kind of Chinese, you know, putting exclusion in legislation names. Uh, Doesn't have a good history. <laughs> yeah. Not sure why they did that. Anyway, uh, I think they just wanted the acronym, the go safe thing. Um, but regardless, uh, yeah, it's it's basically a rebranded bill. You, you took a deep dive into it uh, for members, exactly what it does and why it's some of the, it's not very well written, I guess. You just put it at that. Um, but, you know, there was some momentum from that, I guess, political momentum, because you got three people who'd never sponsored an assault and span before. And now they're on this new, basically just a rebranding of assault and span. Uh, it's actually a little bit stricter in, in a number of ways, too. But uh, regardless, like, so, OK, well, maybe that's what they're doing. They're just going to 
take this momentum from this uh, you know announcement of this new bill and they're going to push forward with that and maybe they can get to 50 votes because there's what 45 people are sponsoring the Feinstein introduced um, assault weapons ban that's been introduced like every year for the last 30 years and uh, never gets more than 40 you know mid 40s and they're all Democrats but uh, so maybe you get to you know 48 that way um, and that's closer to 50. I don't it's not clear that you can get to 50 even with that new bill. In fact, it seems like you can't. Um, but they didn't even they didn't even go that route. They just he just brought up the actual regular assault weapons ban, which still didn't have those other three Democrats co-sponsoring it. So it only has 45 co-sponsors. There are 45 total sponsors, uh, which means it doesn't have majority support. None of the other Democrats who haven't joined on came out to say they would vote for that bill. In fact, the only person and none of the Republicans either, you know, none of your moderate Republicans who, or any of the Republicans who were on the Bipartisan Safer uh, Communities Act from last year, that gun control bill, um, obviously very different from an assaultman's ban in, in severity, but uh, none of them came out in support. And um, the only person who responded to our requests for comment on how they would vote on this uh, was was Senator Tester, John Tester, Democrat from Montana. He's up for re-election this year in uh, you know a state that voted I think fifty seven percent for for Donald Trump in twenty twenty. So uh, you know fairly tough re-election campaign for a Democrat, I think. And he came out and said he wouldn't support an Sullivan's ban. So uh, that was the main insight we gained from all this because the vote failed because it was it was a unanimous consent vote. That's the other aspect to it. They didn't, I think he knew it wasn't going to even get 50 votes, which would be politically embarrassing. And um, so instead of putting it up for a roll call vote or going through the normal legislative process on, on a bill like this, he asked for unanimous consent. And unanimous consent, as the name implies, requires you to have everybody on board in the Senate to basically suspend normal rules and pass a, a bill that way, just by everyone automatic, or, you know, agreeing to it, nobody objecting. And so it just required one person to object to derail that whole effort, which obviously he knew was exactly what would happen and exactly what did happen. And um, so it wasn't it wasn't even a real attempt to try and pass things or get people on the record as to where they stood, because unless they wanted to be on record, they didn't have to. Right. So Tester wanted to be on record. That's why he came out and said something. He didn't have to. Uh, Cinema, for instance, didn't say anything. Um you know, you, you didn't have Collins say anything. You didn't have Murkowski or Romney say anything about this bill. None of them came down and spoke in opposition or support to it. So it was a way to let people say something about the bill if they wanted to and not say anything about it if they didn't want to. Um, right. And a way of saying I brought it to the floor when, you know, technically he brought it to the floor, but it, not in a serious way. Yeah, no, it's pretty clear, just as you laid out there, that all the, all of this was for the political messaging purposes instead of actually trying to get legislation through. It's it's you know it's pretty transparent what was what was being done there. Yeah, it's I mean it's still fairly interesting because like they didn't do this after the House passed the Solvents ban last year when Democrats controlled the House, um, right? And so I don't why the, the Chuck Schumer felt this was the time to do it or the the 
the it needed to to happen at this point i don't i don't really know and and why he went about it this way instead of like i don't know at least if he'd done the other if he'd done go safe it would be like well this is a new you know we're we're creating this new unity coalition of democrats who some of them haven't sponsored this type of legislation before although i will note all of those democrats on that bill on the go safe bill have supported an assault weapons ban so they publicly come out in support of one before so they weren't really the guys to watch uh you know when really the people to watch are tester mansion cinema collins romney murkowski you know those people and then maybe you get to like i don't know the rubios or people like that who was some of the folks who voted for the bipartisan safer communities act but didn't but don't haven't generally supported gun bans um they would be the people to watch not not King or Heinrich or some of the other people who were, or, or Kelly, Mark Kelly in Arizona, to, or Bennett, who they were all on the the Go Safe Act. These just aren't the guys who are signaling that there's actual movement on the issue. The people who would be signaling that would be all the other ones that I just mentioned. And none of them, except for Tester, said anything. And Tester said no. So if anything, we know that there's less support. Uh, perhaps than was possible before this vote happened or non-vote. I don't even want to call it vote isn't even the right <laughs> word for it, Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, that's all we've got for this week. <laughs> um, if you guys like what we do here at the reload, you should head over to the reload.com and consider buying a membership today. That is how we fund our reporting. It's how we fund this whole operation. We do not take funding from anyone else, but our members. Uh, in the form of membership dues. So that is how we survive. We literally could not do it without our members. And of course, if you buy a membership, you will get exclusive access to all these pieces we just talked about. Uh, there's a lot more information in there on the website uh, or in your Sunday newsletter that members get that nobody else gets. Um, so head over, check out the options today, pick up a membership. It really supports what we're doing, helps us out. And uh, yeah, of course, if you're not able to do that, you can sign up for our free newsletter which uh, goes out once a week, doesn't crowd your inbox and gives you the latest of what's going on with guns in America. Uh, you can also, of course, share this episode with somebody you think might be interested in it. Uh, that helps us grow as well. You could leave a rating on the podcast app that you're listening to it on or give it a thumbs up on YouTube, uh, wherever you happen to be. All that stuff helps. But that's it for this week. We will see you guys again real soon.